Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 80, recorded May 25th, 2018. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Ockin. And Brian, we have a special guest, don't we? Yes. Hey, hello, Dan Bader. Hey, guys. It's it's me, Dan. <laughs> Good to be back on the show. And it's always yeah. so nice to hear you do this intro live, Mike. It's uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's not. It's so it's so unreal. It's like, and you sound so smooth. I I love it. I guess I've done it eighty times now. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe eighty two or eighty three for the few times I screwed up with the wrong date. <laughs> well, thank you, and it's great to have you. For those of you know who don't know Dan. Dan's well-known from RealPython and Debater.org and a bunch of Python goodness. Before we get to the show, I want to say thank you to DigitalOcean. So they're sponsoring this episode and a number of them coming up, as well as the actual infrastructure delivering all this technology to you. So pythonbytes.fm slash DigitalOcean, get a $100 credit for new users. Pretty awesome. Brian, I feel like there's a few themes that we touch on frequently in this podcast yeah i guess that we do and <laughs> one of them is packaging so we've talked about packaging a few times mm. yes. and the python packaging authority has a has their like tutorial on how how to package python packages and uh it used to be out of date but now um they've recently revamped it and rewritten it and it's um it's a very user-friendly now it's a it's a short little walkthrough of how to set up a package and push it to the both the test server and then to the full Python package index, PYPI. <laughs> yeah, I got that out. One of the things that's kind of fun to note is um, that I noted is the, the readme example is in Markdown. And that's cool. And that's a new feature, right? That's one of the things of them switching to warehouse and the big release of the new PyPI.org. I think I remember the old examples for setup.py. They were either like too small. They didn't like include everything they needed. Or they were too big and kind of scary. And now this is a medium-sized example set up by that is uh, actually pretty nice. You know, I read through it and it looked like the same tool set that I used to push up. So I think it's pretty accurate now. So that's nice. Nice. You didn't feel like you were super out of date. You're like, why am I not using this or using that? Yeah, because when I when I learned how to do it the first time, I think I read both the old tutorial and then like four or five or six different blog articles on how to do it now, how to do it now. <laughs> Because it changed, but now this is all up to date, so it's good. Very nice. Dan, do you do much packaging? Yeah, so I run a couple of open source projects, and I always felt like, you know, exactly like what you were just saying, Brian, where I had to combine a couple of tutorials just to get it to work, and it never really felt all that straightforward. And so I think this is a pretty nice and pretty minimal write-up. I like that. And I'm surprised that we're, you know, that the recommendation now seems to be to use Markdown-based README files. Like, I really like Markdown. I really, you know, warmed up to uh, restructure text so much. And um, it's definitely cool that they're supporting that now. That's awesome. I think restructure text maybe predated Markdown. And it was, you know, it was the thing when the original PyPI was created. And then just like that thing was, you know, calcified. And like, let's not touch this. <laughs> Let's just not mess with this. Let's just keep it running, right? Uh, it's really good to see that that getting a fresh update. Also, Brian, you talk about Twine in here. What's the story of Twine? I don't know if there's a story with it. That's just the tool you use to push uh, push things up to um, to PyPI. Oh, nice. I probably used it and didn't realize it or forgot that I used it. Maybe there's another way, but that's what I've always used. Yeah, cool. Actually, there's a cool uh, project to throw in the mix here. Um, it's called Flit, F-L-I-T, and um 
it's well, what's a good way to describe it? It's sort of a minimal, simple way to put uh, Python packages on PyPI. So they kind of completely done away with the setup.py. Instead, you write an init file where you just put in, you know, your author name and your homepage or whatever, and it generates all of that other stuff. And um, it might not be really necessary anymore now, you know, if you have like a really sort of short and sweet tutorial like the one that we were just talking about. But it is super, super beginner friendly, this flit thing. Oh, that's cool. Nice. It's F-L-I-T? It's F-L-I-T, yeah. Awesome. All right. And so that's probably on GitHub, isn't it, Dan? Yes, it is. <laughs> nice transition. So the next thing you have for us is an async library for calling GitHub's API. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to talk about this thing called uh, Gidget Hub which is um, yeah, a Python wrapper around the GitHub API. So it basically allows you to talk to GitHub and you can interact with all the different content types that GitHub provides or exposes. So you can add and modify issues. You can you know, create pull requests. You can add comments to pull requests. You can download all the comments to pull requests and all that stuff. So um, the other thing it does, it it uh, allows you to parse GitHub's webhooks. So you can configure GitHub so that every time a new pull request or something like that is created, it sends, essentially calls a an API callback on the web, like on some URL that you give it. And so what you can use GitHub for is a really nice and clean way to write GitHub bots with Python, essentially. And it's just a really cool library, and I think its API is super well designed. So we were recently using it uh, on a, a workshop that we did in Vancouver. Like uh, Marietta, who's a C Python core developer, did it, and I served TA and was running around helping her. And uh, so she wrote a really good, cool tutorial about how to use Gidget Hub. I think it's just a really nice example of a modern Python web API library. It looks really great. And so you just go over here and you say, like, I'd like to open a PR. So you get some PR data, then you say await github.post and you know all your all your methods are async. Yeah, definitely nice and scalable. It looks like it's based on AIO HTTP, which is a really nice client side async enabled REST library. What's really, really cool about this Gidget Hub thing is that it's actually abstracting away from the actual backend, I wanna say, you know, what the the actual library you use to talk to or to to handle those web requ web requests whether they're incoming or outbound so uh, i just learned that this is refer referred to as a sans io library so basically it's just a protocol implementation that doesn't really specify how the io is performed so it allows you to plug in different backends different concrete implementations that make this thing super reusable because, well, if there's a new oh, async cool. library, you know, flavor of the day kind of thing in a couple of months, then, well, you can probably just plug that in and work with that. So it's kind of nice. It's a really well-designed library. Yeah, so you can use AIO HTTP. You can use Tornado. Yep. Yeah, I was recently, we covered it on the, the show, this thing called Unsync instead of Async, UNSync. And it's a, a different implementation with a different uh, thing, a different event loop thing. Maybe you could use that here as well. That's That's pretty awesome. I like it. Nice pick. Nice, yeah. It's nice to use. Super friendly. Yeah. Brian, do you guys do any GitHub automation? You just started with Git at your organization, right? We're doing, a, we've got a private server, so we don't go through GitHub for work stuff. But I use GitHub all the time. Yeah, of course. Locally. So. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I feel like this kind of automation is more relevant and useful when either you're building an app or you have like a big organization and you want to automate 
your company's interaction with GitHub, right? Like me as an individual, I just don't really see a massive use to this for me because I just don't do that much different other than what I personally do with GitHub. But I think it looks really cool and I, I love the way it works. Some uses where you could often use like Travis or something like that. Like if you were watching different, um, if your project depended on a bunch of dependencies and you wanted to, when if they changed, pull them in and run your build, repackage everything and run some tests against it. You could do that locally with something like this. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Or you have that one person on your team that often breaks the build, so you run extra tests when you see them do a check-in. That's <laughs> <laughs> or a, a harassment bot that just goes in and <laughs> be exactly. careful. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think they use it on uh, CPython. You know, they, they moved all of the source for that to GitHub, and I think now they they have a, run a couple of bots that um, I think one of the things they do is so when you contribute to CPython, um, they need you to sign an agreement that you're giving up the rights essentially for your contributions. And so they I think Marietta actually runs that bot. I'm, I might be mistaken here, but it's a bot that checks if that committer or that contributor already has given their permission. And if they didn't yet, then it's just going to ask them to do it. And it sets a flag on the PR. So it's it's super cool that way when you can sort of code up a workflow like that that you never have to worry about again in your life because it's 100% automated. So I think it's it's great for that sort of use case. That is a great use case. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. Okay, so the next one that I wanted to talk about actually was recommended to me, because, recommended to me and Brian because of some stuff that I had recently been doing. I think, you know, we were all at PyCon. I think maybe we're all at the same, same meeting or get together. And I had just decided like, that's it. I'm writing a... Python systemd daemon that will synchronize all of my course data geo basically across the various servers in the different locations. So there's like eight or nine places in the world that serve up course content based on where you are. And so I wrote a service in Python that is a systemd service that will basically keep all those places in sync. Nothing too impressive, but it's kind of cool that you can do that in Python. So we got pointed at this thing called PySystemD. And this was actually presented at PyCon 2018. So there's a whole talk and you can go learn about what is SystemD, why you care about it, how is it used. But the short version is this PySystemD is an API into the SystemD whole API part of Linux. So you can create things that are daemons. You can say like, I would like to have my Python web app start, and I want it to start in this way, but I want it to not start before my MongoDB server starts. I don't want MongoDB to start in that way. And you can configure these things to all just happen on boot or on on demand, things like that. So I think this is really pretty awesome. For So if anyone's doing any sort of automation with systemd and they're already using Python, here's a really great way to just like, you know, import this library and just ask, hey, Let's load up this unit, which is like one of these services, and ask, is it running? Let's start it. Let's create a new one. All sorts of stuff. Really, really nice. That's cool. Yeah, also also kind of cool how how this was built. So this is like based on Cython. So it's a wrapper around the C library that actually talks to, to systemd, right? Yeah, I think so. And actually, I'm going to cover in the next episode this sort of article on using Cython as a way for a simple way to wrap C APIs. That's what surprised me. Yeah. yeah, I think that's why, because it doesn't seem like a performance thing, right? I think it's like, let's use Cython to get a really simple API into the C layer as well as build the integration back into Python. So pretty cool. Yeah, nice. I'd love to see that because I'm surprised they're using Cython for that and not just, you know, C types or CFFI or something like that. But um, 
I'm sure there's a reason for that. The other thing I want to point out about this is this was created and presented by Alvaro Leva. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name there. But he's a production engineer at Instagram and at Facebook. And so, you know, they have a few servers to manage. And this is probably pretty polished and, and comes from a pretty well, uh, well-informed well space if it's being used there, right? Pretty sweet. All right, so before we get to the next one, let me tell you guys about DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is definitely one of the best hosting frameworks or places out there. You can go up, create a server, super easy, create a load balancer. You can create floating APIs that allow you to switch between various machines with perceived zero downtime, all sorts of stuff. All of our code and our sites, our delivery, all that stuff is running on top of it. It has been for a long time, and it's been working great. So, like I said, if you're thinking about running servers and you want to do it affordably, high performance with lots of control, then go to pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean. If you're a new user, you'll get $100 credit. And, you know, check out what they have. It takes about 60 seconds to set up a new server, and you'll be SSH'd in and doing all sorts of good stuff. Maybe you could even use PySystemD to, like, automate some cool stuff on it afterwards. <laughs> so check them out. It helps support the show, and it's definitely a good product worth checking out. Speaking of products, Brian, you're excited about one, uh, an update one, right? Yeah, I am. <laughs> I usually, for a while, I was running the, the latest uh, or the last 2017 release of uh, PyCharm. But I don't know how recent this was, but uh, not too long ago, we had a uh, e, the early access program build one of uh, 2018.2 is out for PyCharm. And the really exciting bit, then we got notified by this from uh, the Bruno Oliveira, who goes by Nicodermis on Twitter. But um, it supports a whole bunch of new PyTest features. And I'm kind of a PyTest kind of nut. So the things that I'm really excited about... So you could say you wrote the book on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could, because I did. <laughs> anyway, the <laughs> a couple of the features that I was really waiting for is PyCharm's really... Being an IDE has a lot of, uh, like, uh, what do you call that? IntelliSense or something? Yeah, autocomplete IntelliSense. Yeah. Autocomplete. That didn't work for fixtures to a test. Uh, so if you had if your test was using fixtures and you was returning an object or a function or something and you were trying to call that, you didn't have all of those cool autocomplete features. Those are now in for fixtures of tests, and that's really cool. But the thing that I'm really excited about is uh, parameterization now works seamlessly within PyCharm. So if you've got a test that is parameterized so that you've got like several, or in my case, sometimes dozens of different uh, uh, parameter sets that are run through the same test, you could always run that through, run all of those parameterizations in PyCharm, and that was wonderful. If you wanted to rerun one or rerun the failing ones, it would just rerun all of them. I see. It treated it like a whole method in the decorator bit that had, here's all the variations. That was just like a thing that it would just rerun, right? Yeah. So now you can run a test, and then in the, the left sidebar, you can uh, right-click on one of them and rerun just one of the parameterizations. Or you can, um, like, for instance, if uh, like only two or three or some of them failed, when you rerun failures, it only runs the parameterizations that failed. And uh, this is a huge time saver for me, so I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's nice. I use that feature a lot where I just say rerun the failed tests. For people that are like really, and may not be too much of an issue for people that are running um, 
running really quick tests, but a lot of my tests talk to hardware, so they're not really that fast. So <laughs> this will save me like an hour a day, I'm sure. That's awesome. Yeah, very, very cool. Dan, do you use PyTest? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I actually just, uh, you know, used it. I rewrote uh, the, the backend for realpython.com. So we've got PyTest powered tests and integration tests for that. And yeah, it's just been a joy to use, like especially the parameterization stuff. It's just so nice when you can reuse a lot of test code. You don't have to like copy paste it around so much. So Dan, one thing I was going to cover, but you put it in here before before I could get to it. So you're faster is basically why is installing Python 3.6 so hard and so uh, sort of confusing, right? Like you talked about this workshop that you recently did and I've thrown this out on Twitter and people sometimes tell me, oh, it's not hard. It's super easy. You do this. But then you, if you actually go teach a workshop to beginners, you're like, why are those four people over there not ready yet? Like it's been 10 minutes. What could they have possibly been doing? And it's because like there's all these edge cases, right? It's one of these things where in theory it's easy and it's not a problem that you really run into when you've, you know, have a little bit more experience under your belt. But for people getting into Python, it, it is definitely a barrier. And um, we were taught, teaching this this workshop. So Mariata was teaching it and I was just running around kind of, you know, supporting people. And for some people, we spend almost like two hours to get them to a working Python 3.6 um, install. And, you know, there were some really like you hit all of these interesting, but obviously kind of frustrating edge cases. Like some people were running, they were running a Windows host and then they were also running the Linux subsystem for Windows. So now you can, you know, can essentially boot up a VM that is integrated into Windows and it boots Ubuntu or Debian or some other Linux, the Linux distribution, I think. I think defaults to Ubuntu, I'm not sure. I think it's Ubuntu as well. Yeah, that's nice. So basically you have this like really tightly integrated Linux environment that you can just work from from your Windows host environment. The problem is that people maybe accidentally installed Python in the Linux environment and they try and access it from the Windows environment because it's a little bit unclear if you're a beginner, like what actually the difference is, you know, between these like two different uh, terminal windows. <laughs> right. And you also might open PowerShell, which is like a third still. <laughs> exactly. You know, things like that. And then you have like your paths set in different ways. And other issues were that. So the previous long-term release of Ubuntu, I think it was 16.04. So it doesn't ship with Python 3.6. And so for this tutorial, we specifically needed 3.6. And so, you know, people started Googling and just copying a bunch of stuff from Stack Overflow to install Python 3.6 on Ubuntu. Well, it turns out there's like two different PPAs, so like third-party packages that you can install this from. And one of them is broken or was broken during that time. So, you know, people would have Python 3, but it had broken SSL and no pip. So... It was essentially useless for the purposes of this tutorial. And it's kind of crazy just into, you know, the, all of the edge cases you can encounter with this. And I think it's, it's really something we need to keep in mind. You know, when we're teaching beginners or kind of telling people how awesome Python is, it's, it can be a pretty jarring experience if you try to set it up and you're just sitting there. Well, okay, I just wanted to try this. It doesn't work. For sure. Well, so you guys are writing this up at realpython.com slash installing dash Python as sort of an ongoing guide, right? Yeah, so we decided to do something about it. So shout out to uh, John Sturtz and Jim Anderson. And um, we got together and put together this uh, sort of the ultimate Python 3 install guide. And we're going to keep it maintained. And um, it tells you how to install Python in very specific steps in all kinds of different configurations. So Linux, Mac OS, different Linux distributions, how to compile it from source. And um, we're just going to add to it and you know improve it based on feedback. And 
hopefully that's something we can just use in the next workshop and then tell people what to do. I hope that when you refer to Python 2 in there to say, oh, don't do Python 2, do Python 3, that you call it legacy Python. <laughs> so just throw that in there. <laughs> I'm trying, still trying to make that a thing. I don't think we even mentioned it in that particular piece. It's just Python 3 only. Yeah. And then uh, my Mac is about ready for a format because, you know, it's time. It's been like, it's been bad. <laughs> so anyway, it's about time for a format. What would you, like, after going through this whole experience, we could do Homebrew, you could do Anaconda, you could do download the PKG file from python.org, et cetera, et cetera. What would you do if you were setting up a new computer? Like on Mac? Yeah, on Mac. Yeah. I, so I'm a big Homebrew fan because it makes uh, it makes upgrading very easy. And um, it's just something that I personally use for other purposes as well. So one of the things I usually do, you know, when I set up, a new macOS development environment. I upgrade Bash. So I use Bash as my preferred shell and macOS ships with a super old version of Bash. And with Homebrew, it's super easy just to get the latest version of Bash and then, you know, a bunch of other command line tools that I use. And so I just use that to install Python as well. So I kind of like that. I mean, Python org version it works as well, but if you're going to use Homebrew anyway, which I think you want to use if you're on a Mac, then I would just keep everything in Homebrew. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking as well. It makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Both on Mac and on Windows, I just always just use the Python.org installer. Yeah, that's what I've been doing as well. But with Homebrew, you just type upgrade, you know, and you can have different versions and stuff. I don't know. I'm thinking of playing with Homebrew next time, but... Anyway, very cool. Yeah, there's also PyEnv. So that that's sort of the other... If you're going to go with uh, Homebrew, you could just go, you know, brew install Python 3 and you get sort of one, the latest version of Python 3. Or you could install something called PyEnv first. And then that's sort of another uh, layer of abstraction on top that allows you to switch between different versions of Python, including different versions of Python 3. So you can just go, you know, I want... Python 3.5 for testing, and I'm going to run all of my latest stuff on the Python 3.7 beta version or something like that. So that's super nice. It's maybe a little bit more advanced. So I feel like you're probably there, Mike, but for a complete beginner, I'm not sure if I would recommend it. Yeah, 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 sure, of course. I don't think I'm there. <laughs> I've tried it several times, and it hasn't worked for me. So I don't want to go too much longer on this, but uh, what I've started doing on my servers is when I, I SSH in, part of my, my shell profile automatically configures the main virtual environment for whatever that purpose of that server is. So when I SSH in, I'm actually running just a virtual environment just by default. And I was considering doing even that for my Mac and just changing the shell back so it doesn't do something weird. I don't know. I may get myself into trouble with that, but it's been working so far. <laughs> All right. So I want to round this out with just a short little list of 30 amazing Python projects from 2018. So there's this thing called MyBridge. And MyBridge is a little bit like... Um, like a readability or um, a little bit like a flipboard where they kind of keep track of different articles, but it's more technology focused than just say flipboard or Zite, those types of things. And the article starts with the MyBridge AI evaluates the quality by considering popularity, engagement, recency, <laughs> and so on. So apparently they have this AI, which is kind of cool that goes through and like looks at human interaction with all these articles, these tech articles in the Python space and then says, here's the articles that our community sort of interacted with that they, they really liked, or packages actually in this case. So let me just give you a quick rundown on these just to kind of give you all some exposure and like, oh, hey, I hadn't heard of that package. That's pretty cool. And then you guys can jump in and give me some thoughts. So I'll go from the least popular to the most popular. So number 30 is PDF tab extract 
which is a set of tools for getting tables out of PDF documents, which is pretty cool, and data mining on scanned documents, pretty sweet. There's number 28 is Surprise, which is a scikit-learn extension for building and analyzing, uh, building a, a recommender system. So you can like say, you might also like this, which is kind of cool. Number 27, we won't do all of them. That's why well, I'm skipping uh, number 29. Uh, number 27 is Eel, which is basically a simple equivalent of the Python's version of an Electron JS system. What do you guys think oh, of that? Interesting. How have we not covered that already? I think we might have mentioned it because we have been on a. Uh, <laughs> I think I think we've covered it, but there's two variations, and the the sort of story that seems to go along with this is like it's a simple library. It's not really like fully. There's my understanding. You can build simple apps, but not like full on massive apps. But if you could build full on massive apps, I'd be all over this. That's awesome. Number twenty five, clairvoyant a Python program that identifies and monitors historical cues for short, short-term stock movement and stuff. So I don't do really any stock trading. I mean, I put, my, I put money into mutual funds, so I don't really care that much about it. But the reason I bring this up is Python actually is pretty involved in the whole stock trading automation and real-time stuff. And there's actually a really good documentary called The Wall Street Code that goes into all these programmers that are building like AIs and stuff in Python. And it's it's pretty cool. So it's free on, on YouTube. Nice. Yeah. Brian, are you a fan of uh, Mr. Robot or Dan? Either of you guys? Yeah, I was just no. going to say. <laughs> no? No. Oh, man. Dan? I like it. Yeah. Good show. I think it went a little weird in episode two. I was sorry, season two. But like the first year, I was just like blown away. So there's this thing called F Society, which is a hacking tools pack for penetration testing in python which of course python is very big in the cybersecurity space you might if you want to like check your own stuff run some of these tools against your your things and before someone else does we talked about kenneth wright's last time and number 18 was maya date time for humans better exceptions i think we covered that as well 16 api star a really cool expressive python 3 5 based api from Tom Christie, same guy that does Django REST framework, but this is like the re-envisioned Python 3 version, which is cool. MicroPython, very awesome for little projects. Spacey, industrial strength. Uh, natural language processor is number six. Number two was PyTorch for machine learning. That seems to be sort of becoming one of the main machine learning libraries. And number one, Home Assistant for open source home automation. Very cool. I keep dreaming of like creating some IoT thing with MicroPython and then plugging it into Home Assistant. But I just have to figure out what that thing is going to be. That a thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a solution looking for a problem, right? But yeah, it's yeah. a good, good solution, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. It's a good solution if I could just find a problem to like s- apply it to. Those that I read off there, are those surprising? Any of those like super interesting to you guys? I'm a huge fan of MicroPython. So I just learned uh, a little bit more about it. And so it's basically this like super small and lean re-implementation of uh, Python 3, I guess, that runs on these like super low power, low computational power microcontrollers. And it's, I mean, it's just so cool to be running Python on tiny, tiny machines that have very little RAM and, you know, we're talking kilobytes and stuff. And right. like it's a just five insane that you chip. can program this with Python. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so cool. Yeah, and you got one of those little bat in your, your goodie bag at PyCon, right? They did like a, a video review of that on YouTube and I, I was just, you know, all giddy about it, just playing with this thing. <laughs> just plugs into your USB and you can, you know, start running Python on this thing. That's a really good implementation they did. Brian, how about you? Yeah, I guess I'd have to second that. MicroPython is awesome and a bunch of the Adafruit products run are able to run it. 
And uh, yeah, it's all fun. API Store is something I've been meaning to try still. I haven't write, done any projects with it, but it looks fun. Yeah, it definitely looks fun. Quite cool. All right, there's one one final thing I want to cover. We had the GDPR stuff come out, basically come into effect at the end of last week. So just quick point to an article from our friend Chris Medina at tryexceptpass.org slash article slash GDPR, sort of a take for developers. And uh, if you haven't got your stuff all in line yet, please consider doing so for your own good. PythonBytes.fm is all up and ready. So, yeah, Dan, you probably had to do the same for uh, RealPython, right? Yeah, some sleepless nights because it's, well, it's everything's up for interpretation, right? So it's it's kind of hard to, yeah, just to put it into concrete terms. But, um, I mean, it's just been nuts, you know, that now that the deadline for that law to go into effect is is uh, passed. Like, we've seen some services shut down. I think, like, Instapaper is a service that I really, I've been using it for a long time. And uh, they just shut down in Europe. They say it's temporary, but, you know, who knows? Yeah, we'll see. It's temporary until it's not. But, yeah, hopefully they get that figured out. But, yeah, I saw that. That was quite the discussion on Hacker News. The other thing I wanted to bring up, which, I don't know, this is this is pretty cool to me. I deal with an insane amount of large files, and I use Dropbox mostly for that. Like, to give you a sense, like, I have the terabyte plan, and it's like, sometimes gets too full, and I have to clean up my Dropbox storage. But my hard drive doesn't really want to sync that much stuff. Did you guys know that Dropbox released this thing called SmartSync? Yes, and I've been wanting to use it, but it installs a kernel module. And so... I was like, ah. <laughs> right, because it's got to it's gotta get into the file driver. Yes, yeah, so if people have this problem, they have Dropbox came out with this thing called SmartSync that will basically give you in your Explorer and your Open Dialogs and Windows or Mac a view which pretends as if the files are there. And as soon as you try to interact with them, even from like the command line, they will automatically download if they're not, which is basically lets you sync nothing but what you interact with, which is really amazing. It sounds super cool, like... I have a lot of trust in, in you know the Dropbox engineering team and like if it if it works that smoothly I think it's an amazing feature. Sort of been hesitant about enabling it. All right, when you enable it, you tell us how it goes. <laughs> I'll probably try it out. I'll give you guys a give you guys a report eventually. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's it. Unless Brian or Dan, you have extra stuff to share with everyone. No. Yeah. Right on. Well, I think I'm all good. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's great to be back. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Brian, thank you so much and. Dan, thanks for dropping in and adding some spice to the mix for our whole podcast here. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yep. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.